Welcome to the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. Now, here's your hosts, B. Cox and the crew. Greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. It's a perspective of the classics from a fresh point of view. Appreciate you for taking your time and lending your ears to our perspective. You could be anywhere listening to anything, but you're right here with us, so we thank you. With you today is yours truly, B. Cox, and we're still on lockdown, (laughs) y'all. Still battling through this pandemic, the coronavirus, or COVID-19. We are still locked down, but we're still here hard at work. Still looking to give you the classics. Of course, shout out to my crew, my boys, D.T., Cousin Damo, and J.O., been holding it down for me hope to reunite with you gentlemen one time once again to review these classics but we're going to continue to keep it going but pleased to have you all join me as we chop it up over the classics yet again shout out to all our listeners worldwide as we're trying to get through this thing everyone nationwide here in the united states as well thank you for showing your love for following on social media for downloading for sharing for rating for subscribing you really keep us going i appreciate that we're putting out good content and that you all know recognize and appreciate that so thank you all once again we're gonna get through this i promise you and as always we like to take you back in time and our motto here at the vault classic music reviews is hashtag open the vault hashtag nothing but the classics and we have yet another yet another classic and of course we go back as well 30 years ago to public enemy and fear of a black planet their third studio album released on April 10th, 1990 by, by Def Jam Recordings and Columbia Records. This was their follow-up album to the group's landmark and groundbreaking record, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Many people, of course, a lot of my followers of this show note that as one of the greatest, if not the greatest hip-hop album of all time. And this was their follow-up effort in their third album as a group. Released April 10th, 1990, recorded between June 1989 and February 1990, recorded at many different places, Green Street Recording in New York City, the Music Palace in West Hempstead, Spectrum City Studios in Hempstead, runtime of 63 minutes and 21 seconds. Executive producers Chuck D, Eric Vietnam Sadler, and of course, Hank Shockley and Keith Shockley of the Bomb Squad, who was Public Enemy's production team, the famous Bomb Squad and legendary Bomb Squad who crafted the sounds of Public Enemy in their early days. Just a little bit of background on Fear of a Black Planet. As I said, it was their third album. It was the follow-up to It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And this was, as Chuck D. described it, their effort to have a deep and complex album. And a lot of the different things that they did here was attempt to be able to address a lot of the different issues in the world and also to create really an expansive record that built on what they did on it takes a nation of millions to hold us back now the bomb squad uh, took a very creative look and approach to this album everyone knows the work that they did on the first on the second album but on this third album they sort of expanded on that and really took a really a drastic approach with trying to craft this record production wise. And to me, it works to me. I think this is one of the most well-produced hip albums in hip hop history and considering what they had to follow up, 
I thought they did an excellent job of being able to follow up this album. Now, there were a lot of things going on between the second and third album. Uh, Public Enemy, of course, is, you know, very politically driven, very uh, pro-black, very uh, Afrocentric. And they were a complex group with a lot of different members in between the first and second album. Uh, as the first single of this album, the famous fight, the power came out. Uh, Professor Griff, who was a part of Public Enemy, was dismissed from the group for making what was considered to be anti-Semitic statements during 1989. Because of that controversy, there was a lot of scrutiny that was going on with the public enemy from the media and from radios in regards to the things that were being said. So as this album came out and then the climate in America and things that were happening was a very racially charged and a very explosive time heading into the early 90s, as we would know what would happen over the next two or three years, so many very explosive racial, racial times that happened, specifically what happened in Los Angeles with the riots and also with a number of different other racially charged incidents around the United States. Pretty much what you saw here was a follow-up to be able to build on that uh, through the recording and the production. What the Bomb Squad wanted to do was to sort of make a, a sampled layer, as they said, wall of noise, to expand on what they did before from It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. So they took a lot of different sound frag fragments, a lot of different other samples from other sources. There's a lot of things that you see here in this album that you hear. And it's not just samples from music. You hear a lot of samples from speeches, a lot of other samples as well from rallies, and also things have taken from the radio, real-life things that were done famously on one of the tracks of a radio interview that was being done and the caller's responses to what was being done. Of course, a lot of white America did not vibe with what Public Enemy was saying because it was really a very radical message that was being pushed back into their face, and that didn't jive with a lot of America, especially the, uh, those who were white and those who were in power, because they were very anti-establishment. To me, I like to look at Public Enemy as the East Coast version of NWA. They were sort of like mirror images of each other. Now, of course, the messaging was a little bit different, um, but I think the intent was sort of the same between what NWA was trying to do and what Public Enemy was trying to do. Just to give you a little bit of perspective as well, for those of you who heard my previous review on the Tribe Called Quest, People in Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm, I was eight years old when this album came out. Uh, these albums actually came out right around the same time, of the, time as each other. Really, two really great and groundbreaking albums came out right around the same time. I probably knew a little bit more about Public Enemy at this time than I did about A Tribe Called Quest. And that was because Public Enemy was so much at the forefront of hip hop that particular time. You, you see individuals and members like Chuck D. Everyone knows Chuck D. He's one of the iconic figures of hip hop, one of the iconic figures of urban music and is now transitioned not just into one of the more influential rappers of our time, but also as a political contributor also a political analyst, and also he sort of gives commentary as well in regards to uh, race relations, uh, government, politics, things of that nature. And of course, <laughs> one of the most iconic figures in hip-hop <laughs> because of uh, his physical appearance, Flavor Flav. But not just that, but because of what he bought on the records as well. And you really start to see that with uh, Flavor Flav. And for those of you who are of a younger age who are, aren't as familiar with Public Enemy's iconic work, you know Flavor Flav as sort of this uh, caricature of a person. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it as a clown. And you saw him. It was, I believe, starting off it was The Surreal Life. And um, from there, it went on into all the flavors of love and all the stuff that was being done. And I know at that particular time, you know, Chuck D and Flavor Flav were not really getting along. But 
I guess Flay felt like he needed to capitalize on some opportunities to be able to make some money. And he did it because he capitalized on his name and got his name back out there in popular culture. Now, if you're listening at the time of this recording, those of you who understood, there was uh, a few months, about a month or so back, maybe a month or a half back or so, a public enemy, Chuck D, was actually at a rally for Bernie Sanders, who was one of the Democratic nominees for president, but has now since dropped out of the race and is no longer a nominee, considered to be a nominee at this time. But Public Enemy and Chuck D sort of threw their support behind Bernie Sanders and his agenda and also his platform. Now, uh, Flavor Flayed made some uh, disparaging remarks about the campaign. And as a result of that, Chuck D fired Flavor Flav from Public Enemy. <laughs> now, those of you who have been following Public Enemy's history, many different members have been a part of this through the different aspects of public enemy not just the music side but also of the information side and the political side uh professor griff was one of those he was famously fired from the group but then was brought back to the group terminator x was a part of the group as well and is no longer part of the group and this was the first time that well one of the times i believe that flavor flave had been dismissed from the group and no longer considered to be a part of it now that was because of his remarks about what had happened in regards to the campaign but I think it was about maybe a couple of weeks ago or so, Chuck D said that his firing of Flay was actually just a publicity stunt and promotion of an upcoming album that was coming up. It seems a little bit cheap to me, man. I don't, I kind of always thought the public enemy would be above things like that, but you know, times change and things change as well. And we know that Flav has not necessarily been the flavor Flav that we remember him to be, especially early in his career with such a influential group and, iconic groups such as public enemy but now it seems as though he's sort of gone a little bit by the wayside and who knows what's going on in that brother's head man but <laughs> nonetheless uh that's pretty much what was uh what was happening in between the release of rotation nations and millions to hold us back and fear of a black planet but what you see here in the 20 tracks that are actually here on a fear of a black planet a lot of different things that have happened on here a lot of great production by the bomb squad Listening to this album, though, I was definitely a little bit more familiar with them. But as I got on, the older that I got, Public Enemy sort of shifted to the background. And that's when you started to see Chuck D as a political commentator and sort of someone who people sought their opinion on not just hip hop, but also on political affairs and also social issues as well, which was always kind of the backdrop of what Public Enemy operated in. But as I got older, I started to dig into their discography a little bit more and started to really be amazed by what I was listening to. Now, a lot of hip hop heads will point to it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And that is an incredible, awesome, iconic, groundbreaking, whatever superlative you want to use to talk about that album. It is. It's one of the best. Some people will say it's the best. It's up for debate for a lot of people to for what I would have to say is definitely one of the most top five. I would say top five influential albums of all time, considering you know, what it did and then the time period it was being released. But to me, this was the album that sort of got me latched on to Public Enemy because of all the different, the commercial success that this had. As I started to, as I got older and really started to understand what was being said in those albums, at eight years old, I can't really get what's being said in those things. My eyes weren't open enough and who's thinking about anything at eight years old, really. But the older that I got, I started to appreciate what I was hearing and appreciating the work and then when I got into production and started to do my research on the bomb squad and the work that they did in the late 80s into the early 90s 
it was amazing as I started to get into production to see the type of things that they did. I mean, the type of expansive work that was all being done with the different pieces of equipment and a very, as we called the golden age of hip hop on that Emu SB1200, one of the iconic producing production machines out there and what the bomb squad was able to do. And then looking up the samples that were done here, it's amazing how they were able to filter all these things in. So I got to appreciate this a lot more the older that I got. And this was the public enemy album that really latched me onto the group because it was of course very successful in the things they were trying to convey, but then also very commercially successful as well. And the first thing that a lot of people heard from this album, of course, is the very last track on this album, fight the power which aside from being on Fear of a Black Planet was also on the soundtrack for Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, which was released in 1989 and was featured very prominently at several times during the movie, particularly everyone remembers during the penultimate scene at the end where South Pizzeria is burned down after the death of Radio Raheem being uh, killed an act of police brutality. So <laughs> this has been a protest anthem for the longest while. And interestingly enough, Fight the Power, the song as a single was released, get this, on July 4th, 1989. <laughs> it's so typical public enemy that they will release this album on July 4th, 1989 on Independence Day on the 4th of July that they would release a song and that song would be Fight the Power. But talking to talking about this album, really, this is what Chuck D had to say about it in a review that he did with Billboard in a interview, actually, that he did with Billboard on the 20th anniversary of Fear of a Black Planet. He talked about the importance that this album had, and this is what he had to say about it. Coming off the heels of It Takes a Nation and Millions to Hold Us Back, The Bomb Squad, uh... Uh, the whole thing was to come up with a whole different game plan. We wanted to go really with a deep, complex album that still resonated with a collection of singles from the last couple of years. And um, we also wanted to make an album that was um, more conducive to the, the highs and lows of a great stage performance. We took Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's Color Confrontation Theory and um, condensed it into a recording. You know, telling people, well, color's an issue that's created and concocted to take advantage of people of various characteristics with the benefit of a few. How do you condense that in 1990 into a rap album when they think everything is infantile anyway? That was a challenge, you know. We met it with some sights and some sounds. And the beautiful aspect of that record, although we had Fight the Power and Welcome to the Terranome lead up into it, the first single on that record was uh, 911 is a joke. Takes the Nations was our nation record. Fear of the Black Planet was our world record. And what surprises me even to this day is when people come around and say, you know what, Fear of a Black Planet touched me and, and, and kind of dragged me into Nations, but really it touched me. You know, it touched me in a different way. Nations that I wanted to, you know, fight and kick some ass. But fear just made me actually just sit for a second and be humble to the to the to the power of the universe, and then you know kind of focus my attention on defense. Looking back on it, when we were making Fear of a Black Planet, hell yeah, we knew we was making something that wasn't done. Back then, we definitely knew what was not being done. So we said, you know, <clears throat> going to take this road, and this road's going to take us somewhere. We know it's going to take us somewhere. There's no traffic on this road anyway. 
Welcome to the Terror Dome is my favorite song only because of it dealt with an issue of a particular period that was very personal to me. But, you know, the most important record that Public Enemy has done and continues to use it as a closer is Fight the Power. Spike Lee put the, that song in the movie eight times. It meant a lot of people, you know, a lot of things to a lot of people. And it was written to be an anthem, and it was written at a particular time that needed an anthem, not just in the movie, but just in the time of the people. Life. No service till you turn that shit off. Stevie Wonder asked me the other night, he said, man, come on, say that line, say that line. Elvis was a hero of the most, but he never meant shit to me. You mean straight racist, that sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucker, come in, John Wayne, you know? So Stevie was asking, yo, man, say that line, say that line again. I was like, yo, but then again, you're talking to Stevie Wonder, so when Stevie says do it, I guess do it, because he's... You know, a lot of people will tell you that controversy is good. I didn't ask for the controversy at all. We were, you know, accused of being racist, anti, you know, whatever. And then uh, we were also in the middle of being like the lead theme song for a major corporation, which was universal for Motown, Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing. I think it was the first time that every word in a, in a rap song was being scrutinized word for word and line for line, which had to kind of like, you know, lead back to my lyric writing, because I had to write, you know, clever, you know, cleverly enough where, you know, we were, we were about us, we wasn't about anything um, that we wasn't about. And there you have it. Described by the man himself, what they strove to do with this album was really, like they said, to expand on what they did and to take the nation and millions to hold us back. And this was really like, you know, pushing color and race as an issue, which was an issue in America. And as they famously mentioned, what they really took was condensing Dr. Francis Cress Welding's theory of color confrontation and racism, white supremacy. And they pretty much put that into this recording, which became Fear of a Black Planet. And they knew what it was that they were doing when they made it. And I think that's really the, the foresight. They kind of knew and saw what was coming and what was happening in America. And you can hear and see a lot of the themes and things they talk about in that album that are still even relevant to this day and some of the times that we're in. So very innovative and really interesting to hear his, his perspective on it and the things that uh, they were able to accomplish in this album. Now to sort of get to... Uh, some of the things, the highlights of this album, jam-packed with a lot of different things on here, particularly before I get into the tracks. I just want to talk a little bit about the Bomb Squad and their production. Now, there were so many different samples that were used here for this album. And what they did, they were very innovative in the things, how they layered some of the samples. As they explained and Chuck D explained, what they did was layer upon layer upon layer of tracks. And basically... What they did was uh, using that Emu SP-1200, which was a drum machine sampler, S-900, Akai S-900, and using a Mac, uh, they would pretty much take that stuff and then pretty much construct everything that was happening. And they took that between the samples of records, between the samples of, they said, as Chuck D explained it, it was maybe somewhere between, as they said, uh, different fragments of speeches, a lot of different things that happened, speeches and uh, interviews. There was the interview on 63, 6.3 FM. They called it. It was an interview with Chuck D where they had caller feedback. 
really what they did was pretty much take everything to construct these samples and would layer as they call it music loops upon music loops. They uh, actually did this in a time when there were the hip hop industry was undergoing a shift where sampling was really starting to come upon attack from the music industry. As many people know, there was a famous lawsuit in the late eighties and early nineties for hip hop artists who for years have been sampling records and either are not attributed to the sample or were taking them without permission. So what the bomb squad did, as they mentioned here is that they pretty much took the sounds, mashed them all together to the point where the only thing that you could do is you couldn't really recognize the samples that were being used at that particular time. Everything was sort of being mashed together. As Chuck D ex explained, they were being collaged together to make a sonic wall. Now, what's interesting enough is that there was analysis done by law professor Peter DeCola and also Kembu McLeod that estimated that under the sample clearance system that had developed after that album's release, which everything changed after that, when you had to go through to clear samples, so many different things you have to go through. Sometimes you use a sample and the label won't, wouldn't clear it. So then you have to start again from ground one. It was estimated that they were to lose at least $5 per copy of Fear of a Black Planet and royalties if they were to clear the album samples at what was the rates in 2010. Now, that loss, get this, would have been a loss of $5 million on a record that went platinum, which is now, I believe, double platinum. And that's amazing when you think about it, $5 per copy. And at that time, CDs and tapes, well, tapes at that time were probably selling somewhere around the area around $10. When CDs came out, CDs were probably selling around $14, $15, depending on the time period. Sometimes it'd be as much as like $16.99 or $17. $5 is a significant amount of money. And considering what the artists get, after the record label takes their cut and everything goes in for budget, doesn't really leave a lot of money left over for the artist at that time. So what they did before this new sample clearance method that happened after this album came out is that they made these samples almost unrecognizable for the labels to be able to understand where these samples came from. And that was one of the great things about using something like the SP 1200 is that you could use so many different things. You could speed a record up, you could slow it down, you could alter the sounds, to the point where you can make them to the naked ear and the untrained ear unrecognizable. So <laughs> shout out to the bomb squad, man. They did a lot of great work in the late nineties, late eighties and the early nineties. And uh, this is just another example of that, but to get now into the highlights of the track, God, you got to love a lot of the things that are on here. Of course, I love welcome to the terror dome, a very politically charged record. As Chuck D has said, one of his favorite records, and it's one of the songs that they use to close out a lot of their live shows. It referenced the murder of Yusef, Haw Yusef Hawkins and then also the riots that happened in 1989 in Virginia Beach. You know, a lot of the different things that had happened. This is right around that 1989 riot happened as Greek Fest was happening down there. And there were incidents that happened in regards to 7-Eleven being, being looted. And there were a lot of, lot of clashes that happened as a result of some unrest that were happening in the city at that particular time. That's where Welcome to the Terror Dome pretty much uh, came. And also there were things that were sort of happening as regards to some of the response to Professor Griff's anti-Semitic remarks uh, that were made the prior year. So that was really a politically charged record. One of my favorite public enemy records as well. And Another one of my favorite tracks on here as well, you hear 911 is a joke, which was actually the first 
uh, single that they came out with other than Fight the Power that came as an actual track that was on this record. That is a record that is actually headed up by Flavor Flav. That's one of the favorite tracks that I have that Flavor Flav did. And it really kind of talked about as far as like, you know, the whole thing about 911 and the fact that a lot of people feel as though they couldn't trust emergency services to be able to service our communities and the black communities. Another one of my favorite tracks here, Burn Hollywood Burn. Now, Burn Hollywood Burn is a track that featured Ice Cube and Big Daddy Kane. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Ice Cube actually enlisted the Bomb Squad to work on his debut album, which is America's Most Wanted, which was his debut album after he left NWA and after the NWA World Tour. And he went to go work with the Bomb Squad. So he was already linked in with the Public Enemy family. And they enlisted his work to be able to come work on Burn Hollywood Burn. Also featured the great Big Daddy Kane, who had a great verse on here as well. This might just actually be my favorite track on this album is Burn Hollywood Burn. Other than Fight the Power, of course. But a really great track, very compact track. Uh, Chuck D, Ice Cube, and Big Daddy Kane all killed this record. Another one of my highlight tracks that I love who stole the soul, which is, uh, you know, really as far as they talk about is you hear a lot of references in there when you talk about how record companies have famously screwed over a lot of black artists uh, throughout the years and how they were calling for really the record labels to do right by a lot of these black artists. Historically, back in the 50s, into the 60s and into the 70s, there were a lot of record labels that were doing a lot of black artists wrong, you know holding on to their publishing, taking their catalogs, holding them for ransom, not giving them their just due, paying them royalties that were below standard, even some of their white counterparts. And you hear these stories now over and over again about these artists in those areas, how they pretty much gave up their publishing because they didn't know any better. And, and a lot of record labels did stuff like that. So they spoke on that. Fear of a Black Planet, which was the title track, speaks a lot about, you know, the theme of the album. America and the world being fear of a planet that is of black people. Other of my favorites here as well are, you know, Polly Wanna Cracker, Can't Do Nothing For You Man, which was another single on here as well. Anti-Nigger Machine, the very politically charged track, Power to the People, and Revolution Generation. You hear a lot of different, uh, different you know, bars on here and the things that are being said. With Public Enemy, you're going to get a lot of that. And as I like to say with Chuck D, to me, when I think of Chuck, as far as the greatest MCs of all time, as far as when it comes to bars per se, when it comes to as far as like skill, I don't have him all the way up there. He's up there for me. But I think to me, what makes Chuck great is one thing, his voice. Chuck D has one of the greatest voices on a record and his voice is unmistakable when you hear it, especially back in those days. One of the greatest voices really ever. And then two, the content of what he says and the message that he's that he gives to me, he's one of the most influential rappers and MCs out there in regards to the message that he perceives and the style that a lot of people maybe wanted to pattern themselves after. Uh, as far as when it comes to bars per se, I don't necessarily say when I'm listening to Chuck D, I'm going to hear like a, a fire 16. Like I would maybe want to hear some of the elite MCs, but I do think his influence spreads very, very far. And to me, I think that clout puts him in the top tier of MCs in regards of influence and also of style. And his voice really start, really goes in and gets him there. You hear that on a lot of these different tracks as well. For me, there's not really any lowlights on this album at all. Uh, when I listen to this album, I hear 
very politically charged message. I hear a uh, something that was very well put together, very crafted. The sequencing on this is absolutely amazing. And you read a reading about this, you hear that there was a lot of fighting in between the group, between Chuck D and the members and also the bomb squad, that when they put this out, there were so many fighting about the sequencing here and about working everything out, the logistics behind, this, behind the scenes with the sampling and the production and the mixing and the engineering, that when they finally put it together, they thought that the album was going to be a subpar album because nobody, they could get no consensus from everyone after they had that final mix that everyone felt happy with it. But when they got it out to folks outside of the public enemy family, people were like, yo, this is an incredible record, man. Like seriously, this is really an incredible record. You sort of start to hear that this is an album whilst at 20 tracks. It really is just, just a little bit over an hour. It doesn't feel like you're listening to 20 tracks worth of music. It kind of flows as it goes along and definitely shout out to the things that Chuck D and Flavor Flay were able to do here as vocalists. But then the bomb squad, as I can't say enough, just the things that you heard here from the sampling to the way that they manipulated the samples to the beat breaks. I mean, some of the beat instrumental and beat breaks on here are phenomenal. The things that you hear with the beat breaks they took from these samples is just really something that you can sit and sort of vibe out to. Like I sort of envision when I'm listening to this album, being in a car and I'm thinking about like a car of that era, right? So if you're thinking about the cars of that era, I used to have a 91 Civic hatchback that I had a really great system. I had a pioneer <laughs> system in there and I would thinking about putting in the CD and then putting that at full blast with, you know, a subwoofer in the back and the speakers and letting it just ride out and you just being able to hear and those, those beat breaks and those instrumental breaks sort of hit you right, right there in the heart when you can hear them. And that's just some of the genius that you have from the bomb squad here on this album. So legacy wise, uh, when you look at it, man, it just, this thing did, it did a lot of uh, things for folks that, that really followed this album afterwards. And this album has actually been archived at the library of Congress for a, recording that is significant toward in a contribution towards music and it's right up there with their second album for me as far as when it comes to influence you heard Chuck D's words on that as we just had the clip that we played earlier on now going into notable quotables my notable quotable comes from burn Hollywood burn like I said this may be my favorite track on this album and for me it comes from Ice Cube's verse in the middle of these Ice Cube is down with the P.E. Now every single bitch want to see me. Big Daddy is smooth word to mother. Oh, let's check the flick out. Exploits color. Roaming through Hollywood late at night. Red and blue lights. What a common sight. Pulled to the curb getting played like a sucker. Don't fight the power. The motherfucker. And that little pause that you hear in between. You can kind of sort of make out that he's saying shoot the motherfucker. And <laughs> that's right up the lane of what Ice Cube did. I mean, everyone knows what Ice Cube did with NWA, his work, and also what he did with America's Most. And that's right up there. To me, that was one of the standouts there on the track. But a lot of great quotables on here from Chuck D, in particular Chuck D on Fight the Power, which I think is one of his strongest offerings throughout their catalog. And, of course, everybody knows that third verse where he aimlessly talks about Elvis and also and also John Wayne, which was very controversial at the time. But... That was part of the theme what they were trying to do with Fear of a Black Planet. Again, incredible work here by Chuck D and Flavor Flav and the Bomb Squad. Really a group effort. Terminator X as well of sort of getting this album out there in the consciousness of America. And this is something that uh, has endured throughout time. And now to get to the verdict, of course, if you haven't been able to tell by now, you can tell. 
Is this a certified borderline or just a classic in its time? And to me, it's no shadow doubt of about it. This is a certified classic. It's been archived in the Library of Congress. This is another follow-up effort from the great It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And this was the perfect follow-up to that album for Fear of a Black Planet. And this was really part of a run where you saw Public Enemy really start to take hold. This is part of a three-album run where it has It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, Fear of a Black Planet, and the very next album they came out next year, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back. Yet another solid offering from Public Enemy. This is really them in their bag, as they like to say. This was right in their lane, right in their wheelhouse. So just another great offering by Public Enemy, a classic album, and a lot of classic tracks on here that will endure for years afterwards. Here we are 30 years afterwards, and Fight the Power is <laughs> just about as prevalent now as it was when you saw it in Do the Right Thing and when you saw it and heard it on Fear of a Black Planet and 30 years later now going into an election year is just about as prevalent now as it was 30 years ago when it first came out. So shout out to Public Enemy and Fear of a Black Planet, another classic album for Public Enemy and another notch on the belt for one of the greatest hip hop acts of all time. So Fear of a Black Planet, released 30 years ago. Please make sure you go check it out and listen to it. If nothing else, even if you're not necessarily into political rap and into uh, some of the things that Public Enemy says, listen to it at least for the content because you can listen to it now and honestly, you could take this record and put it right here in 2020 and be like, damn, you know what? Same shit going on, just different toilet. <laughs> Honestly, you really could. So Fear of a Black Planet, go listen to it wherever you can pick up music. Give it a listen and sometimes pull it out just when you're feeling a little bit frisky about the way how things are going right now. And that is going to wrap up yet another edition of The Vault. Please make sure you check us out on our host, Podbean, vaultcmr.podbean.com. You can also get us on our link tree and all of our social media sites. You can follow us on Vault CMR Podcast on IG at Vault Classic on Twitter and on Facebook and YouTube. You can get to us by searching the Vault Classic Music Reviews podcast and in all of our links inside of our bios, you can see the link tree. The link tree contains all of our social media sites and also all of the streaming sources where you can listen to your podcast, where you can catch the Vault Classic Music Reviews. Please make sure you go check us out and please follow us on social media, IG, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. We love the interaction that we get from all of our fans in the United States and worldwide. Interact with us. Let us know how we're doing. Check in with us. Let us know how you're doing through this pandemic. And we want to make sure that you all are keep listening, hoping we're providing just a small amount of entertainment to get through your day as we deal through this crisis. But we're going to get through it. I promise you. We appreciate all the support. And if you have a friend, tell a friend and make sure you tell that friend to tell a friend. Always remember to keep your headphones on and your music loud, but not too loud. And as we close, we like to remind everyone to dream big because dreams are the basis for creation. Always create motivate and elevate because you were never destined or created to stay stationary in this life. And on that note, we say peace. Thank you for listening and coming into the vault. Please subscribe and follow us on Facebook at IV creative and Instagram at I V E C R E eight.